I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. Prometheus and our human origins. Last time on Myth Madness, I went over how, during the Titan Amaki, some of the Titans and their offspring did not side with Kronos against Zeus and the Olympians, and after Kronos' defeat, Zeus made use of some of these Olympus-friendly Titans when he began to organize the universe according to his own designs. Oceanus remained in the great big circle ocean the Greeks believed was at the edge of the world, and Helios and Selene remained the sun and moon deities. Zeus also hitched up with a few of the female titans. Metis, who Zeus eventually swallowed when she became pregnant, but who lived on within Zeus and provided him with some kind of telepathic wise counsel. There were also his aunts, Themis and Nemesini, who gave Zeus natural law, the arts, and the seasons through their children. Other younger titans, a lot of them being abstract concepts and not really personal gods, were either retained by Zeus or assigned responsibilities. For the Olympians, Zeus either assigned them honors, or in the case of Poseidon and Hades, they gained them in drawing lots. But for the origins of humans, I have to go back to another titan, Prometheus. Let's rewind for a moment. Back during the reign of the Titans, the Titan Iapetus, the brother of Kronos, took as his wife Clymene, one of the 3,000 daughters of Oceanus. You should know that this is actually the same Clymene, who was the mother of Helios' son Phaeton, that I talked about in our last episode. My guess is that that was actually her second family, possibly after Iapetus was imprisoned in Tartarus. Anyways, Clymene's first family was with Iapetus, and their four sons were the strong-hearted Atlas, the glorious Minotius, the clever, wily Prometheus, and the scatterbrained Epimetheus. Atlas, as I've already mentioned, fought alongside his father Iapetus with Kronos in the Titanomachy. Minotius was a little different. In one tradition, Hesiod's, he was said to be so outrageous and obnoxious that Zeus blasted him with a lightning bolt. In other traditions, Apollodorus and Eumulus, he did fight with the other Titans and was imprisoned in Tartarus with them. The two other sons of Iapetus, Prometheus and Epimetheus, sided with Zeus and the Olympians. The two of them are closely involved with the origin of humans. Prometheus, whose name means forethought, is the clever brother. As we will see, he is a benefactor or patron to humans, but to the gods themselves, especially Zeus, he is considered a trickster. Epimetheus's name means afterthought, which should signal to you that he is, um, the dumber brother and doesn't think before acting. This characteristic of Epimetheus is going to get the first humans into some hot water. Now, in many different cultures as myths, gods have a purpose behind the creation of humans. In many cases, humans are made to serve the gods. But in the Greek myths, it's not clear really why or even when humans were created by the gods. Recall that in the episode on the Ages of Man, mortal humans, us, or something at least like us, had a few different origins. There were the more spirit-like humans that lived during the time of Kronos, and we know Zeus attempted to make humans a few times, such as in the Silver Age and the Bronze Age. During the Bronze Age, a race of humans was created that had some kind of relationship to ash trees. This is typically understood to mean that they were made from ash trees, presumably carved from the wood. However, the most well-known myth of the origin of man involves Prometheus. 
It's not clear exactly where this fits in to the schemata outlined in the Ages of Man, but we have a few sources for this story with Prometheus. The oldest is once again Hesiod's Theogony. It's also mentioned in his works and days. Hesiod actually says that some of the antics of Prometheus that you'll hear about in a moment were done for the benefit of the Melian race, that is, the ash tree people of the Bronze Age. Nevertheless, we also get a different story for how people were created that drops out the ash tree origin. Prometheus sculpted the first man out of clay. There was a tradition that Prometheus used the clay from a town called Penopeus. Apparently, the clay there smelled like human skin, which made people think that this was actually where clay that Prometheus used to make humans came from. Before we go on, though, I do want to touch upon this source about humans being made from clay. I can't find it in Hesiod, and it seems like it was actually a later addition to the Greek myths, possibly arising in the Roman period. So regardless of exactly how human beings were created, either from ash trees or from clay, eventually the gods and men came to a dispute over how meat should be divided between them. The dispute took place at Makoni, which was later called Sicyon. A great big ox was slaughtered, and Prometheus was chosen to divide its carcass into two portions. Trying to trick Zeus, Prometheus took the ox meat and covered it with the skin of the ox, and then took the bones and covered them with all of the ox fat, creating two unequally sized packages. Zeus even turned to Prometheus afterwards and said to him, Son of Iapetus, most glorious of all lords, how unfairly you have divided the portions. But Prometheus only smiled and thinking he could trick Zeus, told him to take whichever portion he wanted. Now, Zeus immediately chose the larger package, the one made up of bones covered in fat. This is of course what Prometheus wanted to happen, thus giving the humans the package with the delicious and nutritious ox meat. So, the trick worked. Zeus picked the bones and fat, and for that reason, ancient Greeks burned bones and animal fat at the gods' temple altars. Thanks to Prometheus, they could keep the meat to eat themselves. But Hesiod also says that Zeus, whose wisdom is everlasting, saw and failed not to perceive the trick, and in his heart he thought mischief against mortal men, which also was to be fulfilled. So maybe Zeus was tricked, or maybe he just knew pretending to be tricked would give him a motive to cause trouble afterwards. So tricked, or just pretending to be tricked, Zeus took up the package of fat with both hands, and angry, or just pretending to be angry, found out that there was nothing but bones inside. In response to being tricked, or maybe because he just wanted to be difficult, Zeus does two things to make life hard for the humans. First, Zeus and the gods hide something called the means of life. With this, People could easily do enough work in a day to supply them for a full year of not working. Without it, when work stops, the fields worked by oxen and mules begin to run to waste. So what Zeus has done here is make human beings have to work all the harder to survive. Next, Zeus does not give the use of fire to the ash tree race of mortal men who live on the earth. He hides this away. It's a pretty fitting move on Zeus's part. Without fire, the men are now completely unable to eat all the delicious meat that Prometheus schemed for them. Without fire, they couldn't cook, fire clay pots, smelt metals, or light their homes. Without fire, the men could just sit, cold and hungry, in the dark. But here he comes, Prometheus, to the aid of the humans again. He sneaks up to Olympus and hides fire in a hollow stalk of the fennel plant. 
In ancient Greece and Italy, fire was very valuable, and because it was a lot of work to remake fire when the flames went out, fire would often be transported in the stalks of fennel, and the dried pith within the stalk would keep the fire fed during transportation. In this myth, Prometheus uses fennel to hide the fire and sneak it back to the homes of mortal men. Of course, when they begin to light their homes and cooking fires at night, the light can be seen from far away, from Mount Olympus. At this point, Zeus is really not impressed. And in retribution, Zeus takes several steps as a consequence of Prometheus's theft of fire. First, to deal with Prometheus. Zeus has the titan bound and impaled him on a spike. During the day, an eagle was made to eat Prometheus's liver, and at night, his liver would grow back, ready to be torn out and eaten by the eagle again. Next, Zeus set in motion a more complicated plan. It also involved some of the other Olympians and Zeus's children. I haven't talked specifically about them, but I'll have an episode for each Olympian in the near future. Zeus had a god named Hephaestus sculpt a beautiful woman from clay and water. Then Zeus has the other gods bestow on her a series of magnificent gifts. Athena gave her a silvery dress and an embroidered veil with fresh flowers and herbs around the woman's head. Hephaestus also crafted a fine crown of gold and Athena put it on her head. The Graces, a collection of other goddesses, gave her necklaces, and Aphrodite bestowed on the woman grace, charm, love, and desire. Another god, Hermes, gave her shamelessness, deceit, speech, and also a name, Pandora, which means all gift, as all the gods gave her gifts. Zeus then takes Pandora to Epimetheus and offers to make her Epimetheus's wife. Now, before Prometheus was taken away and given his gruesome punishment, he was able to provide his brother Epimetheus with some advice that he, Epimetheus, should not accept any gifts from Zeus for whatever reason, and instead to politely give them back. But old Epimetheus' afterthought did not think about that when Zeus showed him Pandora. While Hesiod doesn't explicitly mention it, Epimetheus and Pandora were probably married, and one of the wedding presents from the gods was a big jar or urn. In the Iliad, there is a reference that within Zeus's palace there are two urns. One contains evil gifts, and the other contains good ones. When Zeus dispenses gifts to people, he takes them from these urns. So, there is an urn or two in Greek myth that contains gifts. In the classic version of the Pandora myth, an urn like this is said to have been a wedding present to Pandora, and that she is told not to open it. But eventually, curiosity gets the better of her. She came upon the urn, wedding present or not, and Hesiod says that Pandora took the lid off and in doing so scattered all the sorrows and mischief and bad things, plagues, old age, etc., into the world, and only hope, the Greek word used is elpis, remained there in an unbreakable home under the rim of the great jar, and did not fly out the door, for this was the will of Zeus who gathers the clouds. To us today, the last segment is a bit open to interpretation. Is the inclusion of hope in the jar a positive or a negative? It's not clear from the Greek sources. The big question is, does the jar preserve hope for men or keep it away from them? It's not clear. What do you think? With that, Zeus's revenge is complete. The main point is this. It is not possible to deceive or go beyond the will of Zeus. Prometheus's attempts to improve the lives of humans has backfired. Now they have to contend with all these plagues and evil and things. Besides the jar, though, Hesiod gives us another way that Pandora affected mortal men. And, as you will soon hear, according to Hesiod, it is very much men who he sympathizes with. Because... Hesiod tells us that from Pandora, all women and human females are descended. I guess Epimetheus and Pandora had daughters and that these bred with the human men that already existed. 
I guess that would mean that all humans today have a little bit of Titan in them. Anyway, Hesiod gives us a very women-you-can't-live-with-them-you-can't-live-without-them monologue, describing women as the cause of a lot of troubles that face humans, or, as he sees them, men. Hesiod says that women are helpful in wealth, but not in poverty. He compares them to drone bees, saying that worker bees go out all day and are busy, while drone bees stay at the hive and reap the rewards. And Hesiod also says that if a man avoids marriage, he will reach an old age where he has no one to look after him. Apparently, back in 650 BC, Hesiod had a bit of a problem with women. He goes on to say that if someone does get married, and this husband and wife are well-suited to each other, there is always the issue of having mischievous children who provide their parents with unceasing grief. Apparently, Hesiod didn't just have a problem with women. Maybe he just didn't like people. Regardless, it's important to remember that these stories are thousands of years old. The treatment of women in them is often really bad. There's a lot of rape and non-consensual sex in the Greek myths, with women almost always on the receiving end of that. In ancient Greek society at large, women tended to have a lot less rights than men. Hesiod's story of how women originated through Pandora provides a window into the kind of misogyny that was unfortunately pretty prevalent at the time. Greek mythology contains several different origins for humans. There was a new race of humans for each of the different ages of man, there was a new race of humans after the Titanomachy, and a few more after that as well. We have stories about Zeus creating humans, Prometheus creating humans, humans made from clay, humans made from ash trees, women and men made separately. We don't really know why humans were created either. The Greeks don't appear to have been particularly concerned with that. What's more though, we even have very specific origin myths for specific groups of Greek people. It seems the gods were fully prepared to make more humans whenever it was necessary. Sometimes humans just pop up out of the blue. The people of Athens claimed that they were autochthonous, which means they came from the earth. Athens is in the Attica region of Greece, and the Athenians claimed their ancestors were born from the soil of Attica, growing out of it like plants. Specifically, the first king of Athens, Erichthonius, was said by Apollodorus to have been born this way. This myth concerns Athena, the daughter of Zeus, and Hephaestus, the Greek smith god. Here is the myth. One day, Athena went to Hephaestus, hoping to get him to create some weapons for her. But he was struck with desire for her and pursued her. Athena fled from him, and Hephaestus finally managed to catch up with her, and I guess was a bit, um, overexcited? He ejaculates onto her leg instead. Athena, quite disgusted, as everyone would be, takes some wool, wipes off Hephaestus' semen, and throws the wool on the ground. From there, Erichthonius was born, and Erichthonius goes on to become king of Athens. This myth fits into Athenian propaganda about how they were the natural inhabitants of Attica. I'll say that again. Propaganda. Nothing like promoting the idea that you're descended from spilled god semen to get that patriotic heart pumping. Thebes, another Greek city-state, had a myth involving their autochthonic origins as well. Their founder, a man named Cadmus, following a series of circumstances, ended up slaying a serpent monster guarding a spring. Afterwards, Athena appears to Cadmus and tells him to pull the serpent's teeth from its corpse and sow them in the ground like wheat. Cadmus does this and sows the teeth as if he's planting seeds for a harvest. From the ground spring a group of fierce armed male warriors, 
referred to as Spartoi, which means sown men. Cadmus throws a rock into the middle of them, and thinking one of their own numbers through the rock, they begin fighting. Finally, only five of them are left, and they go on to help Cadmus found Thebes. They build Thebes' citadel and become the founders of the city's leading families. The Roman poet Ovid gives us another example in the Metamorphosis. According to him, the inhabitants of the island of Aegina were once wiped out by a plague. In response, Zeus took the ants of the island and transformed them into a new race of humans called Mimerdons, which in Greek means ant people. They were a fierce people and made formidable warriors. We now have people to inhabit the world of Greek mythology, regardless of exactly how it occurred. I think it's interesting that the Greeks had so many ideas for where humans came from. In the first few episodes of the podcast, I covered the creation myths of ancient Greece. I've talked about how the gods and other supernatural beings were born or came about. I've told you about the Titans, the Cyclopses, and the Hecatonchires, how Kronos tried to eat his own children to get around his fate, and how Zeus was raised in secret and then returned to defeat his father. You've heard how after he became king, Zeus organized the universe, and were introduced to some of his female partners. Get ready, there will only be more where that came from. Finally, today, we peopled our Greek world with human beings. Back in the first episode, I explained how I wanted to use the myth of the ages as a way of organizing the myths into a general chronology. The Golden Age was the early stuff. The births, the Titans, Cronus's castration of Aranos, and the war between the Olympians and Titans. The Silver Age started with Zeus's rule and included what we talked about in our last episode, Zeus's attempts to organize the world. Where the Silver Age ends and the Bronze Age begins is not clear. Prometheus's humans may have been the Bronze Age iteration. At this point though, the important thing to know is we are now at the end of the mythic Silver Age, or the beginning of the Bronze Age. We're going to stay in that period for a while. In my next series of Greek myths, I'm going to devote episodes to each of the Olympian gods. I'll talk about whose parents are who, whose children are who, and all the nitty-gritty drama that occurs between them. You'll also begin to hear about the interactions between particular gods and goddesses and human beings, so stay tuned. If you're enjoying this podcast, please get the word out and tell your friends. You can follow the pod and give a like on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Subscribe on iTunes or your preferred podcast streaming platform. You can also go to the podcast's website, www.mythmadness.com. Thank you for listening.